Hey there, it's me, Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girlboss. And this is Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. Happy New Year. I can't believe it's 2020. It sounds so weird to say it out loud. It's a new decade. Uh, It's going to take even longer for me to write 2020 on every little piece of paper. But anyway, with every new year, I'm sure you're hyper-focused on setting your goals for 2020 and manifesting all sorts of things for the new year. And I guess you could say we're doing exactly the same thing here at Girlboss because we have some big news which broke over the holidays in December. We are entering a new chapter in our history. We've technically been acquired by the media and technology holding company Attention Capital. It means big things are on the horizon for us. I'll get into the details of what that all means later in the episode because we have one of the founders of Attention Capital on the podcast today. Ashlyn considers herself a renegade academic turned business strategist, and now she's going to be working with us at Girlboss to help us grow strategically and exponentially. Here's a little bit of what she shared during our conversation. Girlboss represents exactly what we think the future of media is. You know, we don't think it's a a future where the industry is built on clickbait and bots. Uh, We think that it's built on people who are part of a community that means something to them, um, a community that they're loyal to, a community that they will get on a plane and fly to hang out with, uh, a community that they will proudly wear on their t-shirt. So Girlboss is exactly that. Okay, there's a lot to talk about on today's episode, so stay tuned. I talk about how she went from academia to building attention capital. We talk about what it means to acquire businesses, how you can go about assessing what parts of your business are worth investing in, and so much more. You don't want to miss this one. Ashlyn, welcome to Girlboss Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, Ashlyn's in New York. We now, we've always been bi-coastal, but we have a slightly larger team in New York. Even though Ashlyn doesn't work for Girlboss, we kind of work for her. So Ashlyn is one of the founders of Attention Capital, uh, holding an operating company that we'll talk a little bit more about, but they just acquired Girlboss at the end of last year, the end of the last decade. And we're going to talk about what that means, why Ashlyn approached us, what the future holds, a little bit about investors versus acquirers the state of media today and her career. So I want to I want to start at the top. Um, you have a PhD. You're a doctor. We get a doc like diagnosing our business every day and like prescribing us great <laughs> advice. That's one way to think about it. I think so. Uh, and I want to chart the path to how you got there. But I want to start at the beginning. What was your first job? My first job, I was 15, and there's a pizza place called Godfather's Pizza two minutes away from the house that I grew up in. Uh, And I just wanted, you know, something part-time to help pay for going to the movies and shopping with my friends. Um, So I applied to Godfather's. My dad dropped my resume off for me. I think it was $5.50 or $6 an hour. And when I got there, I thought for sure – I would be ringing people up and taking orders, but they put me in the kitchen. And 
the complicated thing about being in the kitchen when you're making pizza is that given these massive like pizza corporations have to manage inventory, they had this massive poster on the wall that told you, you know, for X amount of vegetable toppings, the ratio is like one third. One oh, yeah. One Subway third. was the same. It's like nine olives. Yeah. And then if you add a meat in there, you have to divide by two. And so I just got so over- overwhelmed by this poster that I would put all the toppings on. And by the time I got to the end of the conveyor belt, I just felt like a sense of relief, like I had like I had done it correctly. This person's pizza is ready. And I would just put it in the oven. And four pizzas in a row, I forgot to put cheese on <laughs> before putting it in the oven. So about an hour into my first day, they said, okay, we're going to move you out from the kitchen and put you behind the cash register, which I think was a much better role for me. Um And although, you know, my feelings were hurt, I felt as though I had screwed up. I think what that taught me was, you know, everybody's good at something and not as good at other things. Uh, And that's something that I've taken with me when as I'm managing people, you know, not everyone is going to be a superstar at everything. And the way that you want to build a team is by finding people who have superpowers and let them stay away from their kryptonite and let them just shine. You know, everybody should be doing the thing that they are best at. You eventually earned a PhD in philosophy. Did you always know what your superpower was? Were you failing at making pizzas? Thinking about, wow, this is this is just menial work and I just want to think about the nature of existence and, <laughs> um, and read the texts of sad old men who died so, pain, painfully. Yeah. Um, like where, how did you, from there, you know, what does the course look like to charting you know, what it is that uh, you're doing today at Attention Capital? A very long and convoluted story. So, um, yeah, I ultimately ended up getting my PhD. Although, so PhD stands for Doctor of Philosophy, which I did study a lot of philosophy, but my main focus was political communication. And the way that I became interested in that was uh, growing up, my family, you know, had a pretty deep interest and role in politics in Nevada, which is a swing state, so you get a lot of attention. So I was always interested from a young age in leaders, specifically presidents. And I remember watching, it was 1996, Bill Clinton was accepting his nomination to the DNCC, and he gave this incredible speech about building a bridge to the 21st century. And that night, I had to write a speech for my English class for a speech competition. And I wrote it about endangered species. And the conclusion said something about bridge to the 21st century. And I ended up winning that speech competition. So from that point on, my interest in politics and presidential speech writing sort of just took off. So I ended up getting my bachelor's in you know, political communications focused on speech writing decided that I hadn't had enough yet, got a master's in political communication, focused on presidential speech writing. I wrote my uh, master's thesis on the Cuban Missile Crisis speech writing process and then decided I still wasn't done and I w- was hungry for more. So the best uh, communication, political communications program in the country is at UT Austin, and I had to go there. So I did everything I could to get in, including like traveling to meet with the faculty on campus, meeting them up at the National Communications Conference, just everything I could do, every elbow I could throw to get in there, uh, I did. And I remember the day I got in, I was so happy. 
and loved it. The incredible, the experience was incredible, uh, and I met a lot of really great and talented people throughout that entire process. And so you've shifted your career away from politics and speech writing to really the business side of things. Um, you worked as a research assistant, and then in 2013, you became a VP and advisor to the CEO at Hill & Noatin Strategies. So I'm just curious, what does that mean? Is that an assistant role? Is that a chief of staff role? Like, what, was, what did that job look like? What did you do day to day? Yeah, so after I finished my PhD, I really still did enjoy politics, but I knew that a lifelong career in politics just wasn't for me. Um, I was getting a little bit jaded about the political process. And I thought, you know, I've worked on campaigns. I've led some campaign teams. I think business is similar. So I started reaching out to different uh, leaders in my community in Austin, one of whom I eventually met was uh, Jack Martin, who is the CEO of Hill & Knowlton Strategies. Jack actually had a similar trajectory to me. He had started a company called Public Strategies in Texas that managed campaigns and did such a good job that over the course of his career, eventually Martin Sorrell, who led WPP, contacted him and asked if he wanted to merge with Hill & Knowlton, which was a, a long-surviving international PR firm. So that became Hill & Knowlton Strategies. So Jack had a firsthand experience where, you know, he started his career in politics and then shifted into a broader business role. So he was the perfect person to take me under his wing, show me the ropes of, you know, how to run a business, how to deal with clients, um, how to improve revenue at these companies that are doing good things in the world. They just need a little bit of help. Um, and I really enjoyed that process. I really enjoyed uh, meeting different executives who felt compelled to do the right thing for their business, but they you know, sometimes had just been in it too long and didn't see the path forward or felt just you know overwhelmed with a lot of the different challenges that they were experiencing. So I love the opportunity to take fresh eyes and work with really smart people to help them carve that path forward. Prior to that time, you put in six years as a research assistant. Was that a really formative time for you that led to becoming a vice president years later? Absolutely, because part of the work that I was doing was figuring out what challenges people had had in the past, whether it came to running campaigns or dealing with um, different crises during the course of their administrations. And the thing that I learned was you always find the smartest people in the room and bring them into your inner circle. You can never do everything on your own. And that's how the best businesses in the world are run. You have these incredible visionaries at the helm, but they surround themselves with experts in X, Y, and Z field. Um, and the businesses that I worked with that I enjoyed working with the most were the ones that followed that formula. And I want to get into those experts in XYZ fields in just a moment, because that is the team that we've just become part of at Attention that I feel so lucky for. So I want to talk about the makeup of that team and your contribution to that and why you joined Attention. But before that, you went to a company called Palantir, which I've heard about, which is kind of secretive. And when I Google it, there's some headlines about the Pentagon. So I just don't even know data. Can you enlighten me on what Palantir does and what you did during the four years you spent at Palantir? 
Sure. So Palantir was started after 9-11. The founders of PayPal wondered, could they leverage some of the techniques and philosophies that they used uh, with PayPal to help government agencies integrate and analyze their data better? Um, So after working with the government for five years, they shifted also into business, Um, what they the, the part of the company that they call commercial. And across commercial, Palantir works with oil and gas, pharma, insurance, media, financial services. And whether it's in commercial or government, the product is essentially the same. It is a product that helps these organizations, which are largely the most important organizations in the world, figure out how to leverage all of the data that they have to create new insights, to better serve customers, to uh, build new products, um, because a lot of these organizations spend so much time and money gathering data, but then it just sort of sits there, and they don't really have uh, the scale of product to clean that data, manipulate it, analyze it, and then turn those insights into actual business KPIs. What was your role there, and how did that prepare you for becoming a co-founder of Attention Capital? So I worked mostly on the media side of the business. Um, And what we did was we helped media companies, again, sort of assess all of the data that they had, you know, what they would call their enterprise data asset, and identify ways to clean it, manipulate it, analyze it, and use those insights to build new products um, or find new lines of revenue or make smarter choices. So I'll give you an example in... The media business, uh, when consumers are watching a television show, for example, there are commercial breaks. And during those commercial breaks, there are individual commercials. Well, those commercials are called a pod. And every pod has a choice. It can be sold as an advertisement to a brand, or it could be used to promote another show that is on that television network. And every media company has to grapple with the decision of what to do with each pod. Because if you sell it as an advertisement, you get revenue in the door immediately versus if you use it as a promotion, you get more eyeballs in the door immediately. So these companies have to determine what's more important to them at any given point in time, revenue to keep the business going or viewership to make sure their shows are getting good ratings uh, and accolades in the industry that they deserve. How do you optimize things like that? Like what is it that you measure and apply to actually drive those kinds of improvements and learnings? Two things. One is you have to collect and analyze the data that you already have. Um, And then two is you can layer on some really sophisticated AI and machine learning to determine what the outcome of that question will be. Um, But the problem is a lot of companies that try to do machine learning and implement different like cool AI technologies suffer because the the underlying data asset isn't clean enough. And the engineers end up spending 90% of their time going back and cleaning the data. So what Palantir did was they created this badass product that essentially helps the engineers do all of that a lot faster. So that way you can have your Uh, your ML experts and your AI experts come in and just use the data right out the gate. It's cleaning up tech debt as you go. Exactly. Okay. And QA automation. 
See, you sound like an expert, Sophia. I, I got to build something. We're building something. <laughs> Hello. Quick question. Have you ever felt like the most ambitious person in your circle of friends? Because sometimes the people we grew up with or even go to college with end up in really different places in their careers. And finding people like us, finding women like us, can be challenging. Networking is really challenging, especially if you're just coming up in your career. Executives have years and years of networking, but there's no place for us to congregate actually beyond the Girl Boss Rally. So that feeling, the spirit of the Girl Boss Rally is something that we've brought online. Girlboss has built a free online platform and community for women just like you. It's a professional social network where you can ask and answer questions that are relevant to you, search for other women in your community or by industry, message them directly, and we have weekly programming in the form of fireside chats, which are really our AMAs or Ask Me Anythings. You can sign up by going to girlboss.com and get ready for a different kind of networking experience where women support women. I'll see you there. Okay, I want to get into attention capital now because it's the most exciting part of the conversation. Um, Tell me why you joined attention, what attention is. Tell me a little bit about your co-founders, why you joined attention and, and what it is. Yeah. So I knew, you know, from my experience in politics, I knew a lot about why and how media was broken because, you know, (laughs) the most money in politics that's spent is on television advertising. And in my course of working at Palantir and working with media companies, um, the thing that I noticed was most broken about advertising was the fact that the currencies that were being transacted upon and the measurement systems that were being used to measure uh, these transactions were totally BS. Like the fact that in today's day and age, somebody looking at their screen for two seconds is considered a view makes no sense to me. Or the fact that a website essentially establishes its value in the market by how many people land on site and spend less than, you know, one second there. It just, it's a lot of broken metrics and a lot of broken measurement systems. And I didn't think that that was going to lead to a media industry in the next 10, 20 years that would be survivable. So enter Joe Marchese, who was a formidable presence in this conversation. Joe started standing up and saying, you know, this is broken and we need to fix it and there are serious implications. Um, And one of the things that he said that grabbed my attention the most was that what was happening in media reminded him of the subprime mortgage crisis. And as someone who grew up in Las Vegas, a city that was hit really hard in 2008, I took notice. And what Joe was saying was, you know, when you build an entire industry on metrics and measurements that aren't true, uh, bad things happen. So, for example, in the subprime mortgage crisis, you had these mortgages that were labeled, you know, A, B, C quality mortgages, but they were all bundled as A mortgages, and they were all sold as a bundle of A mortgages. And that sort of like mislabeling or misappropriating the quality of something uh, is really dangerous when you have an entire industry that's predicated on that. So Joe and I connected over, uh, you know, sort of commiserating about the state of the industry. But the thing that drew me to him the most was that he's such an optimist. 
And I, you know, frankly, am not. Uh, I tend to look for, it, it's just in my nature. I want to find the things that are broken so that I can fix them. So I don't naturally go find the things that are great. Whereas Joe is such an optimist that he wants to figure out, like, what are the great things in the world that we can just make better? Um, so we started talking about, you know, what the potential for the media industry is, what it could be. And that conversation birthed the idea behind Attention Capital, which is a holding company uh, that is buying, building, and scaling media brands and then also the technologies that help support those media brands. Um, so we are proud to say that Girl Boss is now part of the Attention Capital portfolio. Uh, and Girl Boss represents exactly what we think the future of media is. You know, we don't think it's a, a future where the industry is built on clickbait and bots. Uh, we think that it's built on people who are part of a community that means something to them, um, a community that they're loyal to, a community that they will get on a plane and fly to hang out with, uh, a community that they will proudly wear on their T-shirt. Um, so Girlboss is, is exactly that. Isn't it like something like 50% of ad views are fraudulent? Yeah, some of the latest reports are over 40%. Um, so what that means is every website, for, for every given website, 40% of the hits on that website come from bots or click farms. Which means like advertisers, it looks like they're getting the return on investment because it looks like they're reaching as many people as some websites sold them they were going to get, but actually they're being defrauded. Yep, absolutely. So we think that the media companies that are going to be left standing are the ones that transact on true human attention because human attention can't be measured by, you know, two-second viewability on a website when your mouse isn't moving and your sound is off. You know, that that's not real. What's real is somebody being part of a community and somebody showing up at an experiential event and somebody buying your merchandise because they're proud to wear it. A lot of businesses, especially venture capitalists, look for that one thing. Don't understand brands that are building multiple touch points, multiple revenue channels. I'm curious, why do you think that is the future? Is that something you're going to be looking at with all of the businesses that Attention Capital uh, partners with? So we're largely looking at brands and technologies. On the brand side, we have a couple qualitative barometers that we use. One is the t-shirt test. Would you wear the t-shirt? How much would you pay for it? Um, the second is, you know, would you get on a plane to visit this community or be part of this brand in some way? Uh, and the third is, would you let this brand curate a significant part of your life? And then on the technology side, when you think about the future of tech, when you think about the future of media and what these different brands are doing to help these communities get together IRL. There are different technologies that are needed to help those brands. So for example, ticketing is a really cool area or audience measurement and um, attention measurement, um, different monetization mechanisms. So there are a lot of different technologies that are needed in order to help these brands grow. So it creates this really nice ecosystem of like a symbiote 
<laughs> creates a really nice ecosystem of like a symbiotic relationship between the technologies and the brands. Um, because as a holding company, it's our responsibility to make sure that we're finding the next new company to bring into the fold that adds value to the entire entity. Um, and in the process of doing that, adds value to each part of your, each component of the entity. So media is changing. The media landscape is changing. Girl bosses media, but we're community, we're brand, we're so many things, we're technology. How will attention measure ROI or just attention with this new world, with the thesis of attention capital? So in the 90s and 2000s, content to commerce was all the rage. Um, And given that in 2020, everyone is sort of wading through this overloaded content ecosystem. It's really like convoluted and there's just so much. Um, I, I'm not sure that content plays a massive role in the future of media. What I do think plays a massive role is content curation. So when you think about, you know, what is the new version of content to commerce in 2020? I think it is communities to experiences. So if you use communities as sort of the the playing field and you find communities that really enjoy spending time with each other, that gravitate to each other for a particular reason because um, there's something about them that they find intrinsic, there's a value to it that they find intrinsic in their life, you can monetize that. You can create experiences, which I think are the new form of commerce, uh, that speak to what that community wants and what that community needs. So... Experiential is a massive burgeoning industry right now. And, you know, research after research suggests that millennials care more about spending their money on experiences than on things. So I think that's the new way that media will monetize itself. Um, So part of Attention Capital's game plan is to find the brands that are doing that really well. And you were initially hesitant. You were the skeptic in the room because it just sounds like that's what you do, which is, I think, I mean, I am, I need to grapple with things and walk around them and sniff them out and be like, okay, I don't take other people's opinions at face value. Let me figure out if this is meaningful or impressive to me. Tell me, and just in the spirit of learning and improving and understanding, you know, what other people's hesitations might be about Girlboss, what was your initial, I mean... You you did see the impact of Girl Boss when the book came out. I want to hear about your story on the airplane. But when Joe brought it to you and Nick at attention, what was your first reaction? So Joe, uh, I have two business partners, Joe Marquez and Nick Bell. Joe is, you know, like I mentioned, and he's ever the optimist. Uh, and he had known you for quite a while. Uh, he's been involved with Girl Boss for a few years. Um, so he knew everything about the company. Nick, uh, the thing that I admire most about Nick is that he's so curious. Every company that he hears about, you know, you can be in the middle of a really deep conversation with him. And if you just happen to mention some new company or a new product, he's on his phone Googling it. Um, So Nick is always like sort of out there in the world looking for cool new trends. And Joe just thinks every trend is going to be the next big thing. Um, I tend to be a little bit more of a cynic. I shouldn't say cynic. I tend to be more critical. Um, And I think, you know, when the three of us are thinking about the possibility of what attention capital can be, like this company is going to be massive. 
uh, we're going to do really great things. And I just wanted to make sure that all of the brands that are part of our portfolio are ones that, you know, fit our thesis perfectly. So the thing that I was sort of held up on on Girlboss about was, you know, can Girlboss be the kind of brand that can expand into different product uh, experiences and platform verticals? Uh, And, you know, all the great things that you guys have done at the rally, the retreats, the community, what they've shown me is that they show up for each other. They show up for the brand. And I was convinced as soon as I started learning about the fact that these women, they will get on a plane. They will wear the T-shirt. They will spend hours interacting with each other and helping each other. I was no longer uh, a skeptic. I fully bought into the idea that not only was Girlboss a perfect fit for attention, uh, but it was something that I personally needed to be a part of. I want to hear the airplane story because it's just it's my favorite. (laughs) It's my favorite. So in 2014, when the book came out, I happened to be at the airport getting on a plane to go to Beijing and picked up the book at the bookstore near my terminal and started reading it, got up to go to the bathroom and saw another woman reading the book. And I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Maybe, you know, (laughs) maybe she just grabbed it on the way to the gate, just like I did. Uh, Went back, sat down a couple hours later, got up to go to the bathroom again saw a different woman reading the book. And this kept happening throughout the course of the flight. I think I saw no less than 10 women reading this book. And I remember sitting there thinking, like, something's happening. Like, this is this is what the beginning of a revolution feels like. And it made me realize that I had been setting my sights for myself too low. And if all of the women on this plane who were reading this book felt the same way that I did, then something magical was going to happen over the next couple of years. Wow. Setting so then you see too low with a PhD. Got it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and then you see 2017 where, you know, you have the uh, time person of the year was the silence breakers. All of these women that had come forward during the Me Too movement. Um, 20. Was that 2016? You had the uh, Women's March. So there's just all of these things that have happened. And I don't, by no means do I aim to say that, you know, Sophia started all of this. No. But I think it was the first time that I took notice that something was changing. It was and I'm 2014. So, <laughs> right. I'm so, so glad that in 2019 or in 2020, you know, we get to see how far we've come in the last few years. But I think when it comes to women in entrepreneurship, we have so far to go. And Girl Boss, I have no doubt, is going to be a critical point in that that juncture. We're going to do it. We're doing it. I can't, Hell yeah. I can't wait to do it with you. Um, so it sounds like brands with gravity and, I mean, I guess, attention and loyalty and engagement are what you're interested in. And for the smaller business owners who are listening to Girl Boss Radio right now, how do you think they can build brand trust? That's a great question. Um, you know, the thing that I've learned about Girl Boss is that when in doubt, like ask the Girl Boss community because there are so many people who are experts and have gone through this. So I would turn to the Girl Boss community to, to ask that question myself. Um, I'm not, you know, Joe uh, is more of an expert in terms of brand and marketing than I am. But my just sort of instinctual answer is the way that you create trust is by cultivating a community of people 
that you get along with, that you find value in, that can give you advice and sort of help steer you in the right direction. And you're going to recognize your trust in that brand after there's been sort of like an event that makes you reflect and realize that the advice that you were given, the direction that you were steered in was the right thing to do. Uh, and then you sort of cultivate trust over time. So I think the community is probably the best way to get the right answers. And I agree that it's always about listening, you know, whether it's a client or a consumer. And I hate to talk about our business on these terms, but it's, you know, it, it was what I did in fashion. I didn't sell clothes that I wanted. I mean, I wanted to wear some of them eventually, wear more and more, but my style also morphed into something that looked more like Nasty Gal over the years. But I can't just like pick out a dress that I would like and expect people to like it, right? It's it's a matter of, I guess, augmenting what your vision is, but also listening to what people want because you don't have a business if you have a product that nobody wants and learning and iterating and listening and testing and having a two-way conversation with your community is incredibly important and it's not that hard. Yeah, I agree. One thing I'm very jealous of my partner, Nick Bell, um, is that he, you know, during his time at Snap, he worked on the product evolution of Snap. Um, and what he received every day was information about how people were interacting with the product. And through that process, he had probably one of the best front row seats at human psychology, understanding why people do what they do, uh, how to change product bases based on the choices that people were making. Um, and I think, you know, what he learned that he has helped me understand is that as you build product, like, yes, you have to trust that the entrepreneur is doing something because they believe it's the right thing to do. But you also have to listen to your users. You have to understand that the product roadmap is not complete until you're getting, you know, quick iterative feedback. Hi guys, it's Sophia here. Listen, I'll cut to the chase. We launched a digital social network for you that's free where you can meet with ambitious women, ask them questions, answer their questions, create a virtuous cycle of women supporting women, and create a beautiful profile where you can showcase not just what you do, but who you are, because we're not LinkedIn Monday through Friday and Instagram Saturday and Sunday. This is a place where you can bring your whole self and advance yourself, your life, along with other women who are ambitious and committed to doing the same in their lives. You can message thousands of other users in a way that's thoughtful. Check it out because the way we do messaging and connecting is really unique. And we have regular programming in the form of Digital Firesides, which is where we bring in women like the women who are on Girl Boss Radio, who may be a little bit further along in their careers and lives to share more about how they're doing it. You can ask them questions directly in real time. So you want to get started? I want you to get started. Let's all get started together. So just go to girlboss.com and sign up to be a member. It's free. And hey, you might just meet your next co-founder. So we got into why we've joined forces, but I want to just talk to you, our audience a little bit about what being acquired means. There's words like exit and we're not going anywhere. I didn't leave anything. Like if anything, I just stepped like even deeper into the future <laughs> with partners who are like even deeper than I am in our future. Um, and just for the record, our team is elated. Um, this feels incredibly good heading into 2020 with you. But what does it mean? What does it mean to sell a business and what does it mean to buy it? 
a business? What's a holding company? Yeah, so some of the holding companies that I admire are WPP, IAC, uh, Liberty Media. And the thing that I think those companies do well is they help they help they facilitate opportunities for each company in the portfolio to help each other. Uh, and they are working with the kind of companies that, you know, chronologically are the are the right next ones to bring into the fold. Um, so, for example, the first company that we um, we actually partnered with James Murdoch to buy the Tribeca Film Festival. And the reason that that was a critical company to bring into the attention uh, capital portfolio is because Tribeca allows consumers to trust them to curate a really important part of their lives. You know, when it comes to how we spend our time and attention, uh, consumers are ever more conscious. And Tribeca is a brand that consumers can turn to to say, you know, this this film has the Tribeca stamp of approval on it. Not only that, but Tribeca has the ability to bring people together IRL and have incredible experiences together. So when you think about, you know, Tribeca being part of the attention portfolio, now Girlboss being part of the attention portfolio, what our job is, is to find out what are the other companies that we can bring into the fold that will help add value to both Tribeca and Girlboss. Um, so that's our job as a holding company is to survey the landscape and figure out what are the companies that we think have outsized potential and um, and find ways to have them collaborate with all of the different companies in our portfolio. What does it mean for an entrepreneur to sell their business? You know, different approaches to investment depend on where your company is in its life cycle. VC has a lot of great attributes. Um, but one of the things that being acquired allows you that VC doesn't is the flexibility to have sort of a longer growth trajectory. VC typically wants to see results in five to seven years, whereas by being part of a holding company, you have the opportunity to pause, reflect, and really take stock of where you want your company to be in 10 or 20 years. You know, the the power of a brand is that it's going to be around forever if you run the company, right? And if you, you know, like you mentioned, build the right kind of trust in your consumers. So, we're in it for the long haul. We want to find companies to work with that we know are going to be around in 20 years uh, and are going to play an even more significant role in consumers' lives in 20 years than they already do today. For business owners, considering investment versus selling their business or someone who has a business that's on their way, there really is a time where it's opportune to sell your business. And sometimes you can miss that window or the industry changes. How do you know when it's the right time to sell a business? I think it depends on a couple factors. One is your team. Um, your team will be loud enough to tell you what they think is the right path to for uh, to forge. And I think you know what we saw working with Girl Boss's team was that everybody understood that this is a brand that they believed in, um, and they understood what the path forward was going to be. But what they needed was the time and the autonomy to forge that path themselves, and. When it comes to an entrepreneur selling their company, you know, what it affords you is the opportunity to work with other people who are experts in a thing that 
perhaps, you know, you don't have that talent or skill set on your team or you really want to bring that talent into the fold, but you don't know what the right way is given, given your existing, you know, senior leadership team. So, for example, Joe and Nick and I have different skill sets. And what we want to provide to all of the companies that we're working with is, is you know, help using those skill sets. Skill sets. So, for example, if a company needs, you know, marketing or branding advice, um, they can turn to Joe to help them figure out, you know, what their revenue strategy is and how they get consumers interested and committed to that brand. If they need product or creative advice, they'll turn to Nick, who has a breadth of experience in that area. And if they need operational or strategic or data advice, they can turn to me and I will help figure out, you know, what is the path forward for the organization itself. Um, So there are different holding companies that offer different opportunities for the companies that they work with. Everyone's going to be different. So when it comes to an entrepreneur figuring out what that next step is for themselves, you really have to take the time not only to get to know what the company is known for and what their thesis is, but the principles at that company and what they are good at. So what is, I mean, I have an idea of what it is. This is a brand new partnership heading into 2020. What do you see as what's next for Girlboss? Oh, man. You know, the challenge is, <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to kick myself in the ass by saying the exact opposite of what I just said, which was that, you know, the benefit of working with attention is we know that we want to work with brands that are going to be around for a really long time. Uh, that said, I'm so excited about all of the potential of Girlboss that I want everything to be done in 2020. Um, but there are areas that I think we should focus on first. Uh, so one is figuring out how to expand Uh, experiential. So the rallies are incredible. The retreats are just, oh my gosh, like I think people would kill for some of these retreat tickets. And then, you know, figuring out, do we increase the frequency of those? Do we go to different cities? How do we make sure that members of the Girl Boss community around the country and around the world feel like there are opportunities for them to engage IRL with other members of the community? So I think that's that's area number one. Area number two is the community. Uh, I think the great thing about Girl Boss is that it's not uh, discriminatory geographically. Uh, you have women in the middle of the country, um, and then you have women on the coasts who are all turning to the Girl Boss community for the same exact thing. They all want to build a business and they need help and guidance to get there. So giving women across the country more opportunities to interact with their own girl boss local community, I think is an awesome opportunity and I think is definitely an area that I want to focus on and try to figure out ways to help the girl boss team expand that in 2020. I can't wait. Um, so I want to just get to kind of some of these bigger questions that I think we all grapple with. We all make mistakes. We all have victories. And those will always, always come with the territory of taking risks and building businesses and building our careers and being broadly entrepreneurial and what we do, which is really at the core of, of the Girl Boss community and everything that we everything that we do. So what would you say your biggest career mistake has been and your biggest career victory? I don't think I have a singular like point in time mistake, but there is something that I recognized about myself that 
I try time and time and time again to correct, but it still just seems to linger, but it's something I'm conscious of. Um, And that is, I don't want to say a lack of empathy, but not engaging my empathetic tendencies as much as I should. So because I love to move fast and break things, um, because I like to help teams be action-oriented, sometimes what that means is I don't pause to stop and reflect on, you know, all of the great successes that either a team or an individual team member has contributed to. And instead, I focus on the future and like what hasn't been accomplished. Um, So I think that's something that I recognize in myself. And it's something that I've gotten feedback on and uh, that I take that feedback to heart. So every so often, I'll catch myself um, doing the the but instead of the yes and (laughs) to someone. Um, And I think that's sort of endemic of my uh, tendency to just want to move forward rather than pausing and reflecting and being thankful for the talent or the successes of the people on my team. So I'd say that's probably my biggest career failure is not taking the time to appreciate all of the talented people that have helped us get as far as we have Versus just focusing on how much further we want to go. Victory. Tell me. One of my friends uh, is a badass. Her name is Brooke Fiamara. She was a CMO at a gaming company in Vegas. And she recently um, started as a COO of a spinoff of that company that does a tech product. And she and I constantly talk about imposter syndrome. And... The reason I'm bringing up imposter syndrome to talk about my biggest success is that every now and then when somebody says, oh, you have a PhD, you must be so smart, that's such a big accomplishment, I I self-deprecate. I shit on myself and I say it wasn't that hard or it's no big deal. And what I need to do and what I, I know I need to do is recognize that that was a massive success. There are very few people in the world that have PhDs. And it's a massive accomplishment. But instead, what I do is say, you know, because it didn't feel that hard to me, because I really enjoyed the process, because I loved what I was studying, it wasn't that big of a deal. But it really was. And I'm really proud of all of the work that I put in. And I'm so grateful for all of the people that helped me along the way. Uh, You know, my doctoral advisor, all of my colleagues, um, all of the people at the presidential libraries that I went and studied at and spent hours in the archives digging for random speech drafts. All of those people were critical to my success. And I I'm really proud of that success. You know what you wanted to do to a certain extent. You followed your nose. You actually tried a variety of things, which has led you now to founding Attention Capital. And but success doesn't just mean career, education, right? Broadly, what does success mean to you? But more specifically, what does success mean to you right now? So I, I don't think I'm successful. I wouldn't consider myself successful. Um, I think success to me will come at a point in time in my career where I can elect to walk away from what I'm working on because I have the time and resources to do something even bigger. Uh, and I think given, you know, my adolescence, I was so interested in politics and, you know, geopolitical economics and how people interact on a sociological level across the globe. That's, I think, where I want to come full circle and end up. Like, I I want to figure out ways to use 
my time and my resources to make significant impact on the lives of everyone in the world. I haven't figured out exactly what that is yet. Um, my wife says it's some version of becoming uh, a liberal version of the Koch brothers, <laughs> which I don't quite agree with, but it's something heading in that direction where I can, you know, create a foundation or figure out different partnerships that I want to work with. Um, so TBD on what that is exactly, but it's definitely going to have something to do with leveraging, you know, my network and my resources and my time to make significant impact in causes that I care about. Well, it feels like we're on our way to do that in some capacity. So Absolutely. And we have this thing called Girl Boss Moments, which every week I ask our guests on Girl Boss Radio and our team Monday mornings, um, we go around and talk about our Girl Boss Moments, which can be anything from I bought a plant <laughs> to I took a vacation <laughs> to I bought a company. Uh, what is your most recent Girl Boss Moment? My most recent Girl Boss Moment is that I started deleting Instagram Monday through Friday and then reopening it on Saturday and Sunday. And I did it because I was starting to fall into that trap of social media addiction. And I noticed that I was being less productive during the day. And um, it took a lot for me to do that. And it's made a significant impact, I think. So I'm really proud of myself for taking that step. <laughs> Ashlyn, thank you so much for joining me on Girl Boss Radio. My pleasure, Sophia. To many more conversations about the future. Absolutely. Can't wait. That's it for our show this week. A big thank you to Ashlyn for coming on the show. We covered a lot, but I hope you learned a lot. And I want to say thank you so much for downloading and streaming Girl Boss Radio every week, for sharing with your friends, your partner, your coworkers, your dog, the barista at the coffee shop. So please keep sharing your love for Girl Boss Radio on Instagram, social media, Insta stories with the hashtag Girl Boss Radio. And if you tag me in Girl Boss, we might just reshare it. And as always, be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for me. Happy New Year. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>